My name is Jacob Warren, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Veritas Church. If you're new here with us this morning, uh, know that uh, we're here, we're for you, we're all about the fame of Jesus here, just like we just sang about. Uh, we're going to sing about the goodness of God, the greatness of Jesus, and we really want you to meet him. And so um, at the end of the gathering today, if, uh, if, you've, if I've never met you before, um, I'd love to just shake your hand and say, hey, uh, I'll be at the connect table after the gathering, at the end of the gathering today, and um, I'd love to shake your hand. Um, also, if you've got a Bible, meet me in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, because that's where we're going to be this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's a stack of black hardback Bibles at the back of the room back there, and uh, if you grabbed one of those things on the way in and you don't own a Bible, consider that Bible our gift to you. We love God's words here, and um, we really want you to as well. Now, we're going to jump into the text um, fairly quickly this morning because um, we have a lot of ground to cover in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And so what we're going to do is going to read through this passage together and see what God has for us. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, it's also be up on the screens for you. God's word for us this morning. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority of her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Verse 5, do not deprive one another, except perhaps for an agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as myself am, but each one has his own gift from God, one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better than to, uh, to marry than to burn with passion. This is God's very word to us this morning. Let's stop there. Welcome to church. We're talking about sex, marriage, and singleness. Y'all ready? This is the word of the Lord, y'all. Don't blame me. This is Paul. See, this makes our 11th week in the book of Corinthians. And uh, if you're new to Veritas, you'll catch on quick that what's normal for us is just going right through books of the Bible. Um, uh, last year, we finished up the Gospel of John and then preached through uh, the, 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 uh, the book of Genesis together. Spent a long time there, and even we'll close out this year with four weeks, uh, an, a short Advent series in Isaiah. But what we've seen so far in this letter is that Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and uh, guess what? They're a hot mess, just like every other church. Um, every, any other church you've uh, ever been to, uh, if you're in the military, you've probably tried a lot of them out. I think we'd all agree every church is kind of a hot mess, every single one of them. And so, you're home here, because you're a hot mess too, <laughs> just like me. Here we go. So what we've seen is, uh, first, Paul doesn't go after this hot mess of a church by just railing into them at first. The first thing out of his mouth is gospel truth about their identity in Jesus. He doesn't start with their problems. First, he reminds them of their identity in Christ. Then through the first three chapters, he writes about why their division is so harmful and the importance of being rooted in God's wisdom rather than the wisdom of the world. 
Chapter 4 was all about the problem of immaturity and the importance of godly church leadership. And then chapters 5 and 6, this is when Paul gets around to the other stuff that he had heard reports about. There had been like a tattletale at that church, and no one likes a tattletale, but this one will give him a pass because they were telling him and feeding Paul information about all of the jacked up views that this church had in regards to things like uh, they were celebrating an incestuous relationship. I don't know about you, but I don't even think that's a problem for our culture right now. Like, that's wild, y'all. They were celebrating it, saying, like, freedom in Christ. The guy was shacking up with his stepmom. That's wild. There's a huge lack of church discipline in the church, and Paul needs to correct that. There was the problem of suing each other. And then lastly, this past week, we saw the problem of, uh, of their messed up views on sexual immorality. So if you're new to us this morning uh, at Veritas, you may be thinking, whew, man, I'm glad you guys got through all of that really uncomfortable stuff already, right? And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but we are just getting started. So buckle up. It's going to be a fun ride today. Today we are obviously talking about a few things that could make us uncomfortable, but shouldn't, honestly. See, if we as followers of Jesus claim to have objective truth, about what really is true and what really is good and what really is the best way for humans to live in the world, when we talk about sex or singleness or marriage, we should be like, yeah, we own that. We started that. Like, that's our thing. Like, we're, we're all about those things because we do it the best. But so often in the church, we've been so um, scared to talk about these things because we're scared it's going to create more problems and solve them. But guess what? That's not what Paul does. He doesn't just say like, oh, yeah, no sex, just go for that. Don't do that. It'd be better. Just don't talk about it ever. No, he spends these verses actually telling us what sex is, what marriage should be about, and what singleness should be about. And instead of seeing them as something to be a season to be endured or an idol to be worshipped, he shows both singleness and marriage as gifts to be enjoyed. Good gifts to be enjoyed by God. Now, if you grew up in church, maybe some of you have heard some of these verses used in ways that they were never intended to be used. You may have heard some of these verses, maybe the first part of the verse quoted, maybe about like, husbands, you have authority over your wife's body. But you didn't hear the second part of that verse say it, like, wives, you have authority over your husband's body. And you heard it disjointed. People twisted scripture to try to make their own way here. See, what Paul is doing here in this almost Q&A style of writing about these topics, is corrective teaching. But it's not corrective teaching that demands or demeans obedience for the sake of obedience. Paul is painting a beautiful picture, a grand vision for what sex and marriage and singleness should be all about, and what I think that all of us actually long for. See, uh, you know as well as I do that guilt is a really terrible motivator. Um, I've got young kids, and you were a young kid once, and so your favorite question used to be what? Why? Why? It's like the, 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 the seagulls on the Finding Nemo. Why? 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 It's just, just constant, right? So I'm, my, my kids are at the age where I'm like, hey, buddy, don't do that. I need you to do this. And the first question is, why? Right? Guilt's a bad motivator there. So you can't just go straight for, do it because I said so. I mean, I'm a parent, I'm guilty of that. I've, I've done it, I've done it, we've all done it if you're a parent at some point. If, you, if you're not a parent yet, or you're, you've got a baby or something, like you'll get there, 
we're all sinners. Guilt's a bad motivator. See, our, our knee-jerk reaction to just say, just do it because I said so, won't ever actually get us to where we need to go. See, a couple weeks ago, I was uh, talking with a group of guys in a cohort that I'm with, a spiritual formation cohort, and we were workshopping this phrase that sounds pretty good. It says, meet people where they're at, and, you know, broken, sinful people, and, and call them into something greater. And that sounds pretty good. I've used that phrase quite a bit in my life and ministry. But the problem with it is that when you're actually talking with real people with real problems, if you say, hey, I'm going to meet them where they're at and call them into something greater, it sounds a lot like pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It sounds eerily similar to something that could actually be diminutive for that person. If I could do it, you can do it too. But guess what? That's not gospel. Gospel is this. We workshop the phrase, and it's this. Meet people where they are and invite them into something better. See, we have no capacity as the church or people that, quote, unquote, have it together in whatever ways that we think we do in our lives to be able to give what has been gifted to us. See, one of my friends says this all the time. We're just beggars telling other beggars where the bread is, right? We don't own the bread. We just know where it's at. It's in Christ. It's in Jesus. And when it comes to sex and marriage and singleness, it, we, we, don't just, we don't own these things. We don't own uh, truth. Truth is God's. We know where to get it. We know where to, to lead people. We want to meet people where they're at and invite them into something better. And that's what Paul's doing here this morning. This is what I think he's doing. He's showing us a better way. So over the next few weeks, we'll see Paul, and I think the rest of the Bible, wants us to see sex, marriage, and singleness for the good gifts from God that they are. So here's where we're going. We're going to do three things this morning. We're going to touch on that question of what, what the Corinthians are actually asking here of Paul. Two, see a quick rundown of why what Paul says here is so revolutionary about why we should see these things in, in the light of both the context that he was speaking them, but then also all of the Old Testament. And then settle into Paul's counsel and get in some practical application for how we should live as a church community of both single people here and married followers of Jesus. Because that encapsulates all of us in the room. You are in one of those two categories. So let's start again, look at your Bibles at what the question is these people are asking. The question is this, is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And I want to be fair to these Corinthians for asking a question like this. You know, we just are fresh off the heels of last week with Paul saying, like, flee sexual immorality of any kind. You better believe these, these Corinthians have heard this from Paul before. Flee sexual immorality. Flee things like adultery, lustful thoughts, homosexuality, sex before marriage, and pornography. These are things that we should run away from as followers of Jesus. So you can kind of see, kind of like a, a baby Christian would, these young believers in the Corinthian church have apparently taken that idea of, well, if some sexual activity is a little too far, if some sexual uh, uh, activity is bad, why don't we just cut out the whole thing? And the whole throw the baby out with the bathwater is very appropriate for this. Right? What if we just had no sex at all? None. Zero. What this kind of reminds me of is uh, like them taking kind of like the pop psychology of their own day. Uh, you've probably been in a checkout line before at the Harris Teeter or a grocery store, and you've seen those magazines with the really provocative titles on it, like 
35 couples, 3,500 couples agree, if you do this, your marriage will thrive. And their answer was, don't have sex. And we're like, what in the world? Like, what kind of Kool-Aid you've been drinking? Like, that's wild. Like, that's wild, man. You, maybe you've uh, it's been on like a news website and that, that ad of the guy who's kind of looking off into the distance with his long gray hair and bulbous nose, and it's like, this guy knows this one weird trick that the government doesn't want you to know. And they're inserting, yeah, don't have sex ever. It'll be the best. No, we might feel like, or that sounds crazy for us, but we forget how revolutionary the Christian ethic on marriage, sexuality, and singleness that Jesus actually taught in the Gospels really is. See, the teachings of Jesus are revolutionary, eternally revolutionary for us on these things, both in the light of our current context, Jesus' context of his day, but then also in the light of the whole of the Old Testament. So we're going to take a quick survey of the Old Testament's teaching in view of marriage and singleness. This is what the, the crowd that Jesus was teaching to had on their minds when he was teaching about marriage and singleness and sex. Genesis 1, where everything should start, right? In the beginning, God made man and woman in his image, and he told them to be fruitful and what? Multiply, right? How are they going to do that? Genesis chapter 2, we get a very clear image of it, uh, verses 25 and 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and the wife were both naked and were not ashamed. See, marriage, in the context of marriage, is which a man and woman would fill the earth with image bearers. That is the context where sex would be a place of flourishing, a place of protection, in that place of unity, of like-mindedness, of, of, of a place where they were both valued. This is the means by which filling and flourishing of the world would come. As we preach through the book of Genesis, the greatest tension points in the book of Genesis were in the places where women were barren, where they could not have children. Barrenness was seen as a curse because that is how the promises of God were primarily were going to be fulfilled. Even the proto-evangelion, the first gospel that we read about in Genesis chapter 3, is that a child is going to come and reverse the curse of death by crushing the, the serpent. So in order for that child to come, there's got to be babies. If there's not babies coming, it's seen as a curse. We get to passages like this in Genesis 15, where, where Abram is distraught. He comes to God and he says, Behold, you've given me no offspring. A member of my own household is going to be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. See, Abram is worried about his line getting cut off. He has the promises of God that it's going to be through him that all the earth is going to be blessed. His wife is barren. In context of that marriage, they don't have the blessing of a child, a son. But the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, the classic image. He looked towards the heaven and numbered the stars, if you are able to number them. Of course he can't. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So the foundational teachings of the Old Testament is that marriage was seen as a gift, producing children was seen as the, the greatest and highest honor and blessing. Singleness, however, and the inability to produce children in marriage was seen as a curse. So societally, at the time, getting married and having children secured your social 
and your financial futures, whether you were a male or a female at the time. So remaining unmarried, widowed, or single in general put you at extreme social and economic risk, even among God's people. But then, the story of God that he's telling throughout the whole of the Old Testament begins to evolve. As you read the story further, God remains committed, yes, to his promise of the Messiah, a son being born of a woman who would reverse the curse and crush the head of the serpent of death. But then he begins to call leaders and prophets of Israel to a life of singleness. And those rejected by society, he begins to, to call them out through these prophets calling for justice for widows, for the oppressed, those rejected, and commiserating with those in these places of social low rung. Then in Isaiah 53, famous for being the clearest prophetic picture of the coming Messiah, we learn that the Messiah himself will not be numbered among the favored, the fruitful of the world, but with those and we would be seen by his own people as despised and rejected by men, numbered among the social unvaluables of the world. Then we see this ultimately revealed in Jesus. When Jesus actually comes, does he come with pomp and circumstance? Does he come with a wife and a harem full of, of children and wives and now all of the blessings that the world saw at that time. No, he came without honor and without prestige. He was born of a virgin. He's single and lives a devoted celibate life of singleness all throughout his life. Even being asked when, by his disciples when he was teaching on divorce, whether it's better not to marry by his disciples Jesus says these revolutionary words in Matthew 19. They'll come up on the screens for you. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those whom it's given. For there are eunuchs, and eunuchs is a person who cannot have children, who've been so from birth. There are eunuchs that have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who've been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who's able to receive this, receive it. See, by saying this, Jesus is affirming that singles of any sort, any sort, are valued as equals alongside those who are married in the kingdom of God. We're even told this back in Isaiah 53 about Jesus. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when he makes his offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. How is the single one to see his offspring? How is the one who is barren to rejoice in her children? See, Jesus will see the, these offspring not through the physical birth of his natural children, but through the spiritual birth, new birth of all who would come to faith in him. This was the story that God was weaving all the way back in Genesis, when he said, be fruitful and multiply, it finds its fulfillment in Jesus coming before his disciples after his resurrection saying, go, make disciples of everyone, everywhere, teaching them to obey. What does that sound like? It sounds like fatherhood and motherhood. 
What does that say? Welcoming into the family through baptism. You're going to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're welcoming them into a family. This is the offer on the table when it comes to Jesus. It doesn't matter what physical state you're coming in here today. It doesn't matter your your level of sexual brokenness. It doesn't matter whether you're married, you're single, whether you're struggling, whether your marriage is on the rocks. It doesn't matter who you are, who your family is. Jesus is inviting you into his family. This is what happens when we believe. When we believe by faith in Jesus, when we believe the gospel, we repent of our sins, we are, the red carpet rolls out and we are welcomed into this family. See, church, we need that background to understand what Paul is really getting at here. See, with that background, and I know that's a lot, we can take on this passage with new eyes and see how Paul is inviting us to change our minds about sex, marriage, and singleness. See, Paul's not, he's not just, he's not going to say that there aren't challenges in these areas of life, of singleness and marriage, but he's dead set on not camping out in just the challenges. He wants us to see marriage and singleness as the gifts that they truly are in the kingdom of God as we are all part of the family of God. He also wants us to see the role that sex should play in those who are married. So, back to the question, is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? Paul doesn't come right out and answer it in any positive note. He doesn't say, like, no, don't throw that out the window. He actually has two answers here. He says, for those gifted with marriage, essentially, they should run towards sexual intimacy with their spouse. And for those gifted with singleness, they should run away from sexual activity and run toward a beautiful devotion to God. Let's reread verses 2 through 5 again. Verses 2 through 5. Paul's answer, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to her wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. And the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, there's a lot of qualifiers, for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, and then come back together again, that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of, of self-control. Now, in reading that again, I want to acknowledge that for some of us, this picture of mutuality and equality in the area of sex within marriage kind of sounds like a fairy tale. It just sounds like a really distant thing. You have no idea what that'd be like. Maybe you've had a long and complicated history of sex. Seeing it as dirty, or maybe you've been used and abused in sex. Maybe you have had challenges in this part of your marriage, maybe you're currently in that place of challenge in your marriage, and I I want you to hear, you are not alone. You are not alone. You do not have to suffer in that place of being alone in that part of your marriage. God cares about that part of your marriage. He cares. We all have baggage in this department. This church wants to be a safe place where we can process where we can heal, and we can ultimately see the hope that only comes through Jesus. Whether it's your marriage, uh, whether it's your past sin or a current struggle, know that we'd love to, to help. At the end of the sermon, I'll give you some 
practical ways that we would love to just reach out and help you. But in these few verses, we do see a few things of the way that Paul is trying to show us a beautiful vision for sex in the context of marriage should look like. First, he acknowledges the reality of sexual temptation. Like, okay, I know that like back in Paul's day, he didn't have like YouTube to worry about. He didn't have to worry about like uh, uh, crazy music videos with people like throwing their butt all around and stuff. Like they didn't have to worry about commercials that you're like shielding your kid's eyes during the football game. Like I don't remember my parents having to do that, you know, like, but I'm like, Levi, you can't see that, bro. Like, you know, you know, but Paul is very much keen to the reality that sexual sin and the temptation to it is going to always be with us, right? It's going to always be with us, always going to be a thing. And he doesn't excuse it. He even doubles down that no sexual activity outside marriage is ever permissible. Then he describes healthy sexual activity in marriage. And he does this with this beautiful, like maybe surprising to you, mutuality and equality. Did you get that? Paul says that there's a shared responsibility between a husband and a wife to steward their sexual relationship. Like it's both of your responsibilities. Paul says this, where the wife doesn't have authority of her own body, but the husband does, and we keep reading, likewise the wife does not have authority over, uh, the, the husband does not have authority of his own body, but the wife does. See, he warns against neglecting sexual activity in marriage by saying, do not deprive one another. And if you're thinking, man, Paul is like really sex positive here. Like the sex talk ain't stopped yet. He's not done yet. He ends this sex talk with a scenario where Paul, uh, where both a husband and a wife will decide not to engage in sexual activity in their marriage. And the best reason he can come up with is like maybe prayer and fasting. Did you catch all those qualifiers in there? <laughs> Don't deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. Really defined. Both parties are like agreed and signed on the dotted line. I'm like, yep, this is going to be good for both of us, okay? And like both parties agree to that. See, both husbands and wives are called to steward the gift of sex well within their marriage. And again, I'm going to have a word for the wives and then also have a word for the husbands again. Wives, uh, I want to pause and say that some preachers uh, that I've sat underneath their teaching before have taken verses like this and skewed them to say to you as, as women, um, the reason why your husband ran out on you or was sexually deviant or was looking at porn or whatever is because you weren't putting out. And I want to say that that's wrong. It makes me angry because those men are blaming one man's sin on you. And that is not yours to bear. Women, you are worth more than that. You are not responsible for your husband's deviancy. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Yes, you are to steward your sexual relationship with your husband well, but you are not responsible for his sin. He alone bears that before God. Men, the only thing that you're interested about your wife when you come home at work from work is whether or not you get to sleep with her that night. You're a fool who's on the way to tanking his marriage. You're a fool because you are showing and telling an, a narrative about your wife is that the only thing I care about you is what I can get from you. It's transactional. That belittles her. 
It actually belittles you. You're worth more than that, men. Investing your attention and your affection and your devotion into your wife. Just go home and try it. It's what you're made for. You as a man, investing in your wife, putting her needs above your own is what you're made for. You're made to walk in the example of Jesus. Like Ephesians 5, God's design for marriage is that husbands and wives would be committed to each other's flourishing in such a way that husbands, you image Christ, self-sacrificial love for the church. Wives, you image the church as receiving, submitting to the loving care of your husbands, joyfully and respectfully submitting to them. See, the church is constantly receiving the loving care and cherishing from Jesus. All of us here in the room understand this. Husbands, wives, single alike, we understand that we are loved by God. We are loved and shown love by God by what Jesus has done for us. And so husbands, that means seeing your wife's needs met before your own. Her needs in the relationship come before your needs. Her needs in the home come before your needs. And to keep it PG, her needs in the bedroom come before your needs. Okay? This may sound a little counterintuitive. But what Paul's really getting at here is we understand this because we live in such a self-focused society where all we think about and everything that we do is, what can I get out of this? What am I gaining out of this? And focusing on ourself and whatever the activity is. Even in the context of sex, it's actually proven that if we focus on self-gratification in that act of sex, you know what you get? Just that. All you get. But if you give yourself to meeting the needs of your spouse in that sexual relationship, it actually makes that relationship way better. It makes that act of sex way better because you're not focused on your own needs in that moment. And that moment of self-forgetfulness allows you to be able to take joy in your spouse the way that you should. Paul's here again. Have another caveat and say, ladies, if sex is painful for you, talk to someone about that. It's not supposed to be like that. Women's health care has come a long way. And guess what? Your husband does not want you to be in pain. He quite literally wants the exact opposite of that. And men, if you struggle to have sex, like talk to your doctor. You're getting like pastoral approval to go participate in the common grace of medicine for the sake of your marriage right now, okay? That's what you're getting permission to do right now, okay? Like invest in this part of your relationship. And we're going to talk a lot about this in just a few minutes about how communication is so central to this because I'm of the opinion that most of y'all have not had or don't know how to have conversations about sex with your spouse. I'm learning too. But we're just not good at this. So let's take a caveat here and say like, man, if, you were, if, this, if, if this is your first Sunday at Veritas Church, man, I'm so happy for you right now. <laughs> It's not every weekend that, you know, I get up to here and have to give like a pastoral sex talk. Um, but I'm, I, I want to say just like, hey, it's not my fault. I'm just preaching the Bible here. You know, this is Paul's fault. <laughs> this is God's fault, not mine. Well, let's turn the attention on, on singles in the room. See, in verse 6, Paul 
gets and affirms the idea that marriage and singleness are both good gifts from God. And then he drops the bombshell that his own view is that he wishes that everyone else was single like he was. Now, why would Paul give this beautiful vision for, for marriage and then kind of turn on that and say, well, I wish everyone was single like I am? Here's what I'm convinced of. <laughs> because single people have simple, simpler problems, right? Too many mine, just one mind. That's what Paul's like. I only have to worry about one thing. It's me. He doesn't see singleness, too. It's not just as simplistic as that. He doesn't see singleness as a season to be endured. He sees singleness as a gift, a good gift of God to be enjoyed. See, I want my kids to really understand this. Like, I don't want them worried about who am I going to marry when they're in high school, right? I don't, I don't want to have them view singleness as a gift like I did growing up as this thing to just endure until you can get to the promised land of marriage. Let me tell you, a lot of us had got there, and it was, the grass was not as green as we thought it was going to be. And so singles here in the room, whether your, your desire is to marry or to not, I want to double down in saying like what Paul here is saying is true. Singleness is a gift. It really is this beautiful gift given to you by God. You can give your time, attention, and energy, really all of yourself to God in an undivided way. See, so many of us that are married now look back on our singleness with regret because we wasted it on worrying about not being married or feeling like we were lacking something. See, is it wrong to be single and want a spouse? No way, not at all. Look at the way this passage ends, verses 8 and 9. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to remain single, as I am. Paul writing as a single guy. But if they cannot exercise self-control, specifically in the area of sexual immorality, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. See, Paul's teaching on singleness is revolutionary because it grates against our culture in so many ways. Today's culture wants you to believe that unless you actualize on your sexual desires, you're incomplete as a person. Again, that's a lie. It's an absolute lie. Was Jesus any less of a person because he didn't actualize on his sexual desires? No. Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in every way as we were, yet without sin. Jesus never engaged in any sexual activity that was sinful at all. None. Zero. Was he any less of a person? Does that degrade his humanity? Can he not save our, the parts of us that are sexual because he didn't have those? No. He was tempted in every way as we are. Today's culture would say that you're incomplete unless you find, quote, the one. And let me just tell you, that's a lie as well because the only way I know the one happens the one is the person that you say I do to on the altar. That spouse, that's the one. That's the one. It's not that you got to go out there and find them somewhere. they got some like brand on the back of their head with a number on it somewhere. No, no. There's no person you're just kind of mediating life trying to find. you got to run through all these other relationships to get to the, the real one that you're meant for. No, God has gifted you the relationship that you currently have, and they are the one. They are the one for you. See, God's word says that you're, as a single person, not incomplete in any way if you are in Christ. If he was a complete person in his singleness, we can be complete people in our singleness. Jesus is our example of how to be fully human. See, Jesus not only was single and never engaged in any sexual activity, he also endured, enjoyed incredibly deep relationships with his friends. 
I mean, male friends, female friends, married friends, single friends, just go read the Gospels. He's got friendships everywhere. Jesus had a job. He worked really hard as a carpenter. He had a good relationship with his family. He was well-read. He was respected. There was nothing about him that was lacking because he was single, like not one single thing. In fact, I would even say the devotion that he had enjoyed with God and his patterns of prayer it would have been kind of hard if you had a couple kids running around. You can't just go run off to the mountain to pray for like a day without, without having to think about your wife and kids. You can't do that. And he also wasn't the only one that we have examples to look to in Scripture for healthy singleness. Think about Paul. Think about Phoebe carrying the letter of Romans uh, to the Roman church. Think about Ruth and Lydia. See, these are great examples of us to follow when it comes to this um, practice of singleness. So let's apply the truths of this Scripture to ourselves. And I think we can do this in three ways. We'll come up on the screen. First, application for singles is steward the gift of your singleness. See, you may be single for any number of reasons. Um, some of them are just kind of natural, like you, you've grown up and you haven't got married yet, so you're in a season of singleness. But maybe you're in a season of singleness because of a divorce. Maybe you're in a season of singleness because of the death of a spouse. Here, I want you to hear this, church. Just because of the circumstances of your singleness doesn't negate the fact that it's a gift. God brought you here. God has brought you to this moment of singleness. Whatever one it is, rejoice in it. Live in this moment fully. Yes, it does not negate any of the suffering that you feel through the, the pain of that divorce, the death of that spouse. But singleness is a gift that God is presenting before you right now. Use and steward your singleness well. Figure out what you're good at. Figure out what you enjoy. Most of all, give yourself fully to God. See, don't waste your singleness on Netflix. Don't, don't give yourself to, your, to being worried about single, being single all the time or, or, or just mourning what you had before. So you can hijack your singleness by pretending like you are married still. That's not healthy either. God has brought you to this moment. Walk in freedom and enjoy it. Paul used his freedom to truly be free in his singleness. What we can do when we give ourselves fully to God is we can cultivate an intimacy with God in our singleness that may be more challenging to sustain by those who are friends with us that are married and have kids to worry about. See, in our singleness, I can remember a, a season of college where I realized uh, that I came to a place where I had placed marriage on this pedestal as this idol to be worshipped, and all of my relationships were just me trying to get into that promised land of marriage. And so I was just pining, waiting, anxious about what, what, what could come. Now, did, did, was desiring that bad? No way. But worshiping it? No. That's idolatry. And I repented of that, and I was able to live into my singleness during a couple years of my college time, where, I mean, I experienced just immense freedom to be able to engage with God and know that God met me in every place in my singleness in a way that no one else could. God knew me with an intimacy that no one else could touch at all. God knew my every care. God had my constant ear. We can enjoy an uninterrupted time with God in our seasons of singleness, of prayer and reading and meditation. Finally, you need to remind yourself often and be in a community that reminds you that your singleness is a beautiful thing in the eyes of God. Single person in the room, recognize your value in God. 
just because you're not in the covenant of marriage doesn't mean you're not in a covenant with your God, that he is not committed to you, that he's not jealous for you. Ladies and men in the room, you do not have to lower your standards to what the rest of the world is offering out there for in, the, in, the, in the dating scene. You're worth more than the guy on the dating app who just wants to meet up to see if you'll shack up with him. See, running from sexual sin in your singleness makes God look worthy of following. The rest of the world looks at that and says, man, those people are crazy for not actualizing on those desires. Those people are wild for not engaging in that way in their life. See, devoting yourself to singleness instead of pursuing a same-sex relationship, it really makes God look glorious in the eyes of the world. Like, who else would make that decision? But if Jesus really did raise from the grave, and he gets to determine our sexual ethic, and he is really, truly the thing to be most pursued in all of this world to satisfy our desires, it makes Jesus look incredibly compelling to the eyes of the world. Remind yourself, and right now, that maybe for the rest of your life, no one will be able to share that depth, intimacy, and vulnerability that you get to have with God right now. Now, I'm going to turn our attention back to the married folk in the room. So, three things for you as well. One, steward the gift of marriage. Marriage is a decision to serve the other. Serve your spouse. In marriage, we give up our rights to do whatever we want. Whatever we want, and you share everything. You've signed on the dotted line for responsibility for each other. And so, you share. Like, you know, back in Genesis chapter 2, where it says, you know, the two are going to become one flesh, right? You once were two. Guess what? In marriage, now you are one. So you share everything. Responsibilities, same calendar, same bank account, interests, your weaknesses and your strength. If she's uncomfortable with you watching Game of Thrones because it gets weird sometimes, you shut down Game of Thrones. Like if she's, if, 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 if you are uh, uncomfortable with something that your wife is doing, you can communicate that in a loving way and she will honor that as well. You share those responsibilities and strengths and weaknesses. You share your kids. See, you're not just roommates working on the same group project, right? It's not that everything just gets done in the group project anymore. It matters how it gets done. You know what I'm talking about. Some of y'all are let it soak people, and some of y'all are like, unless it is in the dishwasher already going, then I can't sleep at night. You know who you are. See, preferences and values matter. See, if, you, if she can't eat gluten and you hate tomatoes, stop trying to save money, eat pasta. Like, don't do it. Just don't do it. You have to move away from thinking about me to thinking about we in everything. In marriage, you are co-signing on the responsibility of your lives, and that means you've got to talk about sex. <laughs> right on back to Paul. Here we go. Second thing, give yourself to your spouse. See, you must steward the gift of sex well in your marriage because it's the one thing that's reserved for married people. This, this act of sexual intimacy. Like, other believers can do all other sorts of the same stuff, right? But they can't have sex. You get to with one person on the planet. It's really precious. It's really valuable. It's really important. What it's meant to do is point beyond itself as just a physical act to a spiritual reality of that oneness that you all already are all the time. Even this, the, the relationship between Christ and the church and the consummation that will happen in the new heavens and the new earth of the church 
and Christ coming together to, to rule and reign and live in the new creation for, for eternity, that act of sex between a husband and a wife points forward to that future reality in Christ. And most of us learn 95% of what we learn about sex from movies and TV. My gosh, no worry. No wonder all of our sexual relationships are so broken. It's horrible places to learn. The church must be a place where we paint a beautiful picture of what sex is and why it's so important in our families, not just with one another, not just in our communities, with our kids and the way we disciple them well. You don't give them everything up front. You need to tell them like me and mommy and dad love each other in a special way. You graduate to higher levels of learning there. There's a 101 before there's a 102, right? See, you need to steward this gift well if you're going to do that, you're going to have to talk about it. You're going to have to communicate. See, you have to communicate. It's the number one way to improve any relationship, and in particular, with your sexual relationship, having conversations about sex is going to be very important. If you've never had a conversation with your spouse, spouse outside of, hey, uh, every conversation about sex has gone like this, well, I want more of it, and then, well, I want less of it. And so you're treating it a little bit more like being like on an inner tube behind a boat of like, Hey, how's it, how's it back there? Keep going, you know, or a little bit less, you know. It can't be that. That's transactional, right? You know, faster or slower, you know. Can't be that. You've got to be able to expand your vocabulary and ways in which you can engage with your spouse around this, right? See, as men and women, we may operate differently about how we need to receive this information or hear it from our spouses. As men, we might just need to see it, but women need to hear it from one another. But men, you need to ask your wives the questions like this, like, do you feel pursued? Like, start there. Do you feel wanted? You need to say things like, I love you. I am for you. I'm into you. I'm not into a prior version of you. I'm not even to a future version of you. I'm into you right now. I'm attracted to you. You're my 10. You're my definition of beauty. I mean, you go home right now, you're going to have a great conversation. Great conversation. And again, the things you say or don't say really matter in the context of your home, right? If you're sitting around the dinner table and all you can do is this right here, what's the message that you're sending to your kids and your wife? You're not important. You can and are being ignored. In the context of that relationship, your wife needs to see you engage in meaningful ways with your kids. Again, those kids couldn't come about any other way if you weren't a part of the equation. Need you. Need you. Wives, too. You need to believe that your husband is for you, whether he sucks at saying it or not. He's for you. He wants to. He might just have one trick in the bag. He's got a big club and he tries to hit everything with it, right? He's still for you. He needs to grow. You need to talk him up. You need to tell him the things that you do see that he is doing well. You need to tell him the things that you are attracted to about him. Like ladies, like flirt with your man. You need to. Like don't hold out. Be interested in him. Be vulnerable and honest. Tell him what you want. And then also be vulnerable enough to tell him what you don't want. He'll feel honored by that. He will feel honored by that. So super practical. And husbands and wives, if you're sitting beside each other, why don't you just put your hand 
in your wife's hand for just a second, right? Just a, just a moment. And we're going to say, we're going to look at each other and say, we're going to talk about sex. <laughs> Turn to your spouse. Say, we're going to talk about, just whisper it. We're all secret Baptists anyways. We don't talk about that. Whisper. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to talk to each other about that, right? See, the last thing I need to remind you guys is remind each other in the context of your marriage, but this is for married singles, everyone. We need to remind ourselves that marriages are, are a picture of Christ and church to the world. So in the context of your marriage, you need to pray for one another, you need to encourage each other in the gospel, and you need to acknowledge that others need that too. Like this is why your friends are really important. The people that you're talking to about the most vulnerable places in your life will have influence, right? That's why you need to be in a community group where people know you, love you, care for you, can follow up with you, encourage you in these ways. You need safe places you can have conversations about this, right? Because community group is going to be fun this week, <laughs> right? <laughs> or it's going to be crickets. That's a problem if it's crickets. It's a really big problem because you don't feel safe enough to have these conversations with one another. See, the same God that's called us into a relationship with himself has given us the good gifts of marriage and singleness to each of us because we're either in one of those camps right now. We're either married or single. Both beautiful incredibly good gifts, right? So if you are in a unique season of marital struggle or in your singleness, it's just hard right now, trying to make friends, you just don't have people to talk to, there's three ways I want to encourage you to connect. Uh, we've got these different tools, Prepare and Rich for, for marriage mentors. We've got women's care for women going through unique struggles. Or maybe you just need to talk to a pastor. You just come set, we need to pray, we need to engage with one another in that way and talk about what you've got going on. But we are here for you. Maybe you got a connect card on the way in. Fill that thing out. I'll be at the connect table. Others will be at the connect table. They would love to engage with you. If you don't want to have a conversation right now about that, just write it on the card. And then we'll follow up, follow up later with you uh, with an email or phone call and set up a time where we can hang out and chat. But church, um, let's pray now that we believe that these good gifts would not just be seasons to be endured, but gifts to be enjoyed. Let's pray. God, thank you that... Um, you really have given us this good gift, uh, these good gifts of marriage and singleness. And um, God, when it comes to your relationship to us, God, um, I pray that married, single uh, folks in this room, that we would feel united with one another. We wouldn't envy one another, be jealous of one another of different seasons of life. Um, for those of us that look back fondly on our days of singleness and wish we could just be back there because of the freedom and uh, lack of responsibility that we had then, God, I pray uh, we do business to, um, to repent of that desire, to mourn it, that season of life, and then also be able to live into the season you've called us to now. God, also I pray, uh, would you give us vulnerability with one another? Uh, would you give us a real sense of your loving care and kindness uh, to be able to live into a beautiful reality of marriage and singleness uh, with everyone here in this church? Um, God, may we see that marrieds and singles, we actually need one another um, because we uniquely image the relationship that we have with you, God, um, that you have come, that you have died the death that we deserve through Christ, that you were resurrected on that third day, showing us that you have defeated sin and death for all time, and we are united together in a relationship with you no matter how we come, no matter what our sins and struggles are, God, you meet us there and you are for us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.